Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to uh, Galatians chapter 4, as I mentioned. And uh, one of the reasons we've, we've taken this sort of big picture approach, this meta-narrative approach to Advent, is because it would be easy to think that the first two-thirds of the Bible leading up to Matthew really have nothing to do with Christmas. We might think, well, this is all about something else. And then we get to Matthew and we, we read about Jesus' birth and so on. That's when the Bible talks about Christmas in earnest. But in reality... Uh, Christmas is first foreshadowed in Genesis 3, so that's when we start to get a hint of what is coming. And the Christmas event is actually a thread of promise that runs throughout the Bible, so from beginning to end, as the big story of God's salvation unfolds little by little until it receives what we might call the spotlight treatment in the birth narratives. About 10 months ago, on a Thursday night, my, my second son, had a high school, uh, had an end of year banquet for high school basketball. And if you're a parent who's had kids who played sports, you know how these things can go. Uh, sometimes they seem to drag on and on, but this one actually was pretty succinct. And the coaches had meaningful, brief things to say, and, and you know things went really well overall. No surprises until we got home. About an hour after we got home, I realized that I didn't have my cell phone. It was a brand new phone. It was a new iPhone, and I, I, I couldn't find it anywhere, so um, I started looking all over. had someone else dial it to see if I, could, if I could hear it ring. No luck, and so I started searching at the obvious place, the car. So I went out to the car, and I started to move the seats around, looking under the seats, behind the seats. I'm looking uh, everywhere that I could find, move the mats around. I didn't find uh, my phone. I did find a lot of other things, uh, which I didn't expect. I found uh, some French fries from the early 2000s. Um, I found a boatload of change, almost enough change actually to buy a new phone, so that was, that was encouraging. I found grapes that had turned into raisins over time. So I found a variety of things. I found some CDs, and if you're under 20, you'll have to check with me after what a compact disc is. But I found all these things, but I didn't find my phone. I couldn't find it anywhere. And so went back into the house after searching the, the car and announced to the rest of the family my frustration. And my wife said very casually, you know, when I cleaned up the table... Uh, the trash from our table at the banquet, and I threw it into the trash can, I did notice kind of a loud thud. I said, and? She said, and what? I said, well, what was it? She goes, oh, I didn't want to go rummaging through the trash can. I just figured it was nothing important. I said, it was something, but it was probably my phone. My phone was there. You probably threw my phone away. And so my daughter heard me say this, and she said, uh, well, let's try the, the find my phone uh, iPhone feature. So we tried that. The GPS showed that my phone was in the high school cafeteria. The problem was it was about an hour and a half uh, after everyone had left. So we went. It was dark. Started trying to open all the doors. No luck, no luck, no luck. And then there was one that was open. So we found this door that was open. We kind of tiptoed into the cafeteria. We went to one row of trash cans, and we found they had all been emptied by the custodian. So they were all gone. We found one other row of trash cans. We went to the first one, empty empty. I thought at this point, my cell phone is on the way to a landfill in Los Angeles because we, we live in Southern California. We got to the final trash can of the row and we looked in it and we didn't see anything. And uh, my daughter called it and we heard something ringing from the very bottom of the, of the trash can. Um, so like a good father, I said, will you get that for me? Uh, and so my daughter went, uh, she, she grabbed, uh, was moving stuff around. She found my phone. So we found it, and it was, it was just at the very moment before 
The custodian was going to empty that final trash can, lock all the doors for good. We would have no hope at all of ever finding uh, that phone. Now, there was no doubt in my mind that the timing was a grace of God. Now, that's not a huge crisis, I guess, the loss of a phone. It's not the biggest deal in the world, but I was thankful for that, thankful for the Lord's timing there. There are occasions in our lives when, when we realize that the timing of an event, it just seems so perfect that we conclude this has to be a God thing. Maybe uh, you had an experience where you turned down a street right after or right before, rather, an accident took place, and you would circle back around and see that you missed a terrible accident. Or maybe someone you know had a medical exam where if they hadn't gone at that very moment and discovered what they did, the, the results could have been fatal. Maybe a stroke was on the horizon or a heart, heart attack or something. Or maybe you happened to cross paths with someone, in a, someone new in a way that actually led to a lasting relationship. Maybe you met the one who is your spouse through what seemed to be just a pure... Uh, happenstance. In so many areas of life, timing is everything. If you're a sports fan, you know this. In order for the the quarterback to connect with the wide receiver, the timing has to be perfect. In order for a a batter to hit a a baseball that's been pitched, the timing has to be impeccable. Surgery, timing has to be perfect. The wrong move could be fatal. So the importance of timing. The passage we're in this morning says that God sent His Son when the fullness of time had come. In other words, God sent His Son at the exact moment that He had planned for all eternity and what was the perfect moment for all humanity. Not a second too soon, not a moment too late. It was the right time. But that begs a question, what made it the right time? This morning, I want to answer three questions from Galatians as we consider the arrival of Christ, why was the timing of Jesus' birth just right? Why was it the perfect time for us, and how does it help us? Galatians chapter 4, let me read verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord reads this way, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So if you've been around our church long, you know that we, what we tend to do is kind of work our way through books of the Bible. And if, I were working, if we were working through Galatians in a part of a series, we would take much longer and explain this, I think, at a greater depth. But I want to focus on a couple of key phrases that are very significant, of course, at this time of year. The book of Galatians, uh, by the way, was written by the Apostle Paul um, in the middle of the first century to a group of new Christians who were scattered around this province called uh, Galatia, which we now know as a part of Turkey. And the Apostle Paul went and, he, and people, God brought people to saving faith, so he planted this, these churches, these congregations, 
and uh, instructed them. And, and by all accounts, things were going really well for the church. The churches at Galatia, they were growing. They were really resting in the gospel. They were thriving. They were enjoying a sweet sense of community and fellowship. And then some false teachers came along, and they said, if you really want to remain in God's favor, you have to obey these certain sets of rules. And so what they did is they introduced, Paul would say in Galatians 1, they introduced a, what he calls a different gospel. According to Australian pastor and theologian Ian Smith, Paul reminds these congregations of the sufficiency of the gospel he preached among them. Any attempt to add to the gospel by human effort becomes a denial of grace and renders Christ's death pointless. So Paul reminds these, these young believers the, the sufficiency of Christ's work, the beauty and power of the gospel, and sometimes he actually uses some very strong language. Our students are working their way through Galatians. I'm really thankful for Pastor Brandon and his work. And um, they're, they're, they're seeing as they go through this gospel how this church has been duped into believing in a works righteousness. If you do these things, then God will, you'll stay approved by God. And Paul takes these believers back to the power of the gospel. And where does he really anchor his argument? He goes all the way back to Christmas, you might say, to the birth of Jesus, which he says happened at just the right time. Now, why was the timing ideal? Well, just a little bit of history for a moment. When Jesus was born, Israel was under Roman domination. Um, but overall, things were pretty good. It was during the period called the, the Pax Romana, which was Latin for uh, Roman peace, which happened somewhere between 26, 27 B.C. all the way up to the 180s, 80s. So it was about a 200-year period where things were pretty peaceful in Rome. Uh, there, there was very little threat from opposing nations. The Roman soldiers enforced the laws. And the citizens enjoyed, generally speaking, a time of prosperity. But... If you were a Jew from Palestine, which of course included Bethlehem and where Jesus was born, Nazareth, where he grew up, uh, things were very tense politically. And that's because the Jews were monotheistic. Mono means one, theism, a word for God. They believed in one God, where under the Roman government there were all kinds of gods. There were uh, gods of the sea and gods of the earth and gods of pleasure and gods of fertility. The gods were everywhere, gods and goddesses. And, in fact, the Roman Caesars were also regarded as gods. And so, again, you had all kinds of so-called gods everywhere, and the Roman government tolerated all of these gods. But what they wouldn't tolerate was any notion that there was just one god, because that posed a number of threats to them. And the Jews believed in one god, so the Jews... The Palestinian Jews lived in, in great fear, many of them. Now, what was also going on at that time was you had the development of a system of roads that connected all kinds of prominent cities together and allowed for easy travel. Now, all the roads, uh, all roads led to Rome, ultimately. Um, but because of both of the Greek and Roman conquests, Latin and Greek were known across the empire, which made communication uh, possible. And so... People were able to communicate and barter and trade and do business all over the world because of the common language. So confidence in human ability flourished. So when Jesus was born, it was a time of political tension. It was a time of religious pluralism, which meant that all, there were all kinds of gods 
and it was a time of unparalleled confidence in human ingenuity. But it was also a time of great unhappiness and a profound sense of paranoia. It was a time of rampant sexual deviance where people were looking for happiness in all kinds of places. One historian writes this, The old philosophies were empty and powerless to change men's lives. Strange new mystery religions were invading the empire. Religious bankruptcy and spiritual hunger were everywhere. God was preparing the world for the arrival of His Son. So there were these so-called gods everywhere and people worshiping all these gods and actually doing all kinds of things to ingratiate themselves to these gods. But what they were finding is they weren't really getting answers to their own brokenness. They weren't finding the happiness that had evaded them. There was this deep-seated emptiness and really a craving for real peace beyond just sort of uh, the absence of global conflict. And so here's our first point this morning, why the timing of Christ was just right. Desperation makes for fertile ground for the gospel to take root. In order for the good news to be received as good, we have to first recognize the bad news. In order for people to actually look up to the living God for deliverance, they have to realize they cannot save themselves. God brings us, He brings a people to a place of desperation in order to focus, cause us to focus beyond ourselves to something else. So I want you to think again about the, the way that I described the situation at Jesus' birth, during his birth. Political tension, religious pluralism, all kinds of religions, with really only Christianity being despised, unparalleled confidence in human ability, and the chasing after happiness in all the wrong areas. Things were so different back then, weren't they? Now, I say that because, of course, they weren't. Political tension, does that resonate with anyone? Religious pluralism, all kinds of gods, people all around us. Our kids have fellow students who are part of all different kinds of religions. Unparalleled confidence in human ability. Now we have technology and nanotechnology, and we have all kinds of advancements and all, and all kinds of very important fields, but the confidence in human ingenuity is higher than ever. The chasing after happiness in all the wrong areas. These are ways that would certainly describe our world, and certainly we're in a state of desperation. Over the last two decades, for example, suicide in America has increased by 33%, making it the number two cause of death among those between the ages of 20 to 34. Depression and anxiety are being reported at an all-time high. Never before are we seeing these sorts of numbers Comprehensive study done by healthcare uh, giant Blue Cross Blue Shield was recently introduced with this headline Major depression on the rise among everyone, new data shows. Biggest increase in diagnoses seen in teens. The number of folks on psychotropic uh, drugs has exploded in growth. According to a variety of reports from a variety of sources, we, particularly in the Western world, as Americans, are lonelier than we've ever been. Now, why such an increase in depression, anxiety, and overall unhappiness? I want to propose to you that, where there, that there's an inverse relationship between confidence in human ability and happiness. 
The higher our confidence is in human ability, the greater the unhappiness we experience. Now, certainly there are some wonderful things that, that, that have come about because of the advancement in technology in the, in the fields of medicine and uh, in, in all kinds of fields where we see uh, these advancement in technology really helping us, but we're still confronted all the time with problems that we have no idea how to solve by our own human ingenuity. A spouse, when we hear a spouse say to us, I want nothing to do with you anymore. What sort of, how do we answer that problem? Adult children who make no time for us. Young children who won't listen to us despite repeated warnings. A fog of despair that just won't seem to lift. I just wake up every day and it just seems it's an endless routine. The guilt over past sin. All the positive self-talk in the world cannot remedy that situation. A lack of fulfillment in what we do for a living. The pain caused by unrealized expectations, unfulfilled. If you Google, Christmas makes me sad, you'll get 347 million responses. And one of the main reasons that Christmas can be a sad time is because it is the time of year when our expectations and reality clash like no other time of the year. We have these expectations about the way things will be, how that big meal will be with the whole family together. We have this expectation, and then it turns up very different. Somebody just has to bring up whatever. Somebody has to bring up Trump. Somebody has to bring up Jesus. Somebody has to bring up something, something that happened in the past, and our expectations come crashing against reality. We have these expectations of the way things will go. We're home from school, and we think it'll be a certain way. We we have these expectations about how much time our friends will make for us during the holidays, what that reunion will be like with our parents or with our friends or whatever it is, and they never seem to measure up. One psychologist, Kevin or Ken Duckworth, said, holidays are a great example of expectations exceeding reality for most people, which is not terribly encouraging to hear, but God knew that good news is most meaningful. It affects us at the deepest level when we are desperate. All that to say there was no better time for the birth of the one who would come to save his people from their sins And there's no better time today, no no better time for the advancement of the good news than there is today. Which is why a class like Perspectives that we're offering in just a few weeks is so important. God's plan for reaching the world. Okay, now for the second question. Why was Jesus' birth the perfect time for us? Well, there are two very telling phrases in the section that I just read this morning. Verse 3 says, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary things of the world enslaved to the elementary things of the world. And then verse 4 says, God sent His Son to redeem those who were under the law. Now, both of those phrases are saying pretty much the same thing. The phrase elementary principles is just a reference to the law of God in its entirety. That is to say, all the commands of God. All of the commands of God, do this and don't do that, they, they represent the law of God. Paul's saying that we are born slaves to the law of God in that we must keep every single one of God's commands if we're going to be right with God. In fact, Paul would say elsewhere, if we violate one command, we've actually violated them all. 
And verse 4, God sent His Son to redeem those under the law. What, what, is it, what do you think it means to be under something? It means to be under subjection to it. It means to be under the control of it. And so a, a, a teenager may say to mom and dad, I'm so tired of being under your authority. Or maybe a, a wife says to her husband, I feel like I'm under your thumb. I'm under your control. It means to be, again, under the subjection of something. In other words, when they say that, what they mean is you're ruling me. You are controlling me. You are judging me. And it's in that very sense that Paul writes, this is what the law of God does. It shows us all the ways that we have failed to meet God's standard of perfection. And in that way, it hangs over us constantly, condemning us and making us feel guilty. Here's a second point as to why Jesus' birth was perfect for us, perfect time. From the moment we are born, the law of God stands over us like a judge, constantly declaring us guilty and deserving of death. See, because there is a God, there is a God, one true and living God, who made us, who created us, then we actually belong to Him. And what He says rules. And so this God who made us, who formed us in His image, He has told us how we are to live, and we are obligated to obey every single command without exception. And not just outward obedience, but also inward obedience, also in the way that we think, in the things that we love, in the motives of our heart. We're commanded to obey the law of God in every way. Now, if we were to do that, actually obey the law in its entirety, things would be much better for us. The problem is not the law. The law, the Scripture says, is good. It's right. It's beautiful. It's true. It's perfect. The problem is our sin. If we were to obey the law, the law teaches, as we just said this morning by way of catechism, the law shows us the nature of God. It shows us who God is. And actually, it is the pathway to human flourishing. So, if you want a good marriage, you live according to the way that the Scriptures teach, the way that God has designed marriage to be. You want to have healthy relationships, you live in relationship the way that God has assigned. So the law is the pathway to human flourishing, but the problem is we constantly violate God's law. And this weighs on us heavily, even though we may not even realize it at times. We know that we failed to do everything perfectly, we failed to keep God's law and so we really we live enslaved to it, trying desperately to show God and each other that we're good enough. But in those rare moments of introspection and honesty, we actually realize full well we're not good enough. We haven't kept the law. Even though at times we can put it out of our minds. When I was 17 and a senior in high school, I would drive to school every day, and on the way I picked up my friend Mike Spangler, who lived just a couple of streets over. And uh, one morning I went to pick up Mike, which was my daily routine, and, and I had a 77 Ford Granada. And I would pull, I'd pull up in his driveway, and I waited for a few minutes, as I always did with Mike. And uh, he finally showed up, hustles out, and it's, it's the snow on the ground. And in Ohio, um, when it snowed, you still went to school. And so we, it was, there was snow on the ground, we still went to school. And so Mike gets in the car, put, put the Granada in reverse, I drove for about a foot or two, and I slid on ice all the way down the driveway right into a little pickup truck that was parked on the street. So I got out of the car, my car. I looked at the, 
you know, the, the bumper and everything. You, you couldn't tell anything that had happened to my Granada. Seriously, there's literally no damage at all. But that little truck was just absolutely destroyed. It looked like an accordion. The whole front end was just smashed in. So Mike and I sat there. It seemed like an eternity. It was probably only a few seconds. I said, man, I don't, what do I do? He said, did anybody see you? I said, I don't think so. He said, get out of here then. I said, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I should go say something, shouldn't I? He said, no, get out of here. Just kept hounding me. So I stepped on the, the pedal, and I went to school. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there in my, the first class, first period, and the, the guilt is just killing me. All I can think about was I know that that's not the way I should have handled it. So I'm sitting there, and the second period rolls along, and I just feel horribly. Now, there were a few moments when somebody would say something funny, or I'm listening to a lecture or whatever, I actually forgot about what had happened. I forgot about the way that I had destroyed that person's little pickup truck. So most of the day was just ruined for me. But there were times when, you know, it escaped my mind. This is the way it is with the law of God. It weighs on us heavily. We know that we have failed. We know that we're guilty. But there are times when, we, when it escapes us. Now, just the, People always come to me and say, why don't you finish that story you told? Let me finish. I did, I did go back after school, went back to the house and rang the doorbell. The guy opened the, the door and uh, I told him. Well, he didn't know. I mean, he'd been in the house all day. And I told him what had happened. And I really expected him to say, well, what a noble gesture, young man. Uh, but he said, well, why did you wait so long to tell me? I said, well, I just didn't know what to do. I, 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 my friend was telling me to go. I blamed it all on Mike. Mike was telling me to go, and so I went to school, and um, he, was, he, was, he was upset. He was not the least bit gracious about it, but we ended up you know, getting all fixed with insurance and so on. But that whole day was, a, was, to me, a real sort of microcosmic example of the way the law works. We know that we're guilty. We feel it, although sometimes we can evade the pain, but not often, really. How many young moms end each day with guilt and shame because they feel like they've disappointed God. They haven't spent enough time teaching their children the Bible or they've been frustrated or impatient with their kids. How many middle-aged dads live with regret, regret that they didn't spend enough time with their kids when their kids were growing up? They were so caught up in work, so caught up in responsibility, they really neglected their children. How many senior adults lament that they should have done so much more in the church or in, in sharing their faith as they were younger, and that guilt really haunts them. How many men and women end each day feeling like failures because they think there's so much that I could have done, so much more? It's because we are born enslaved to the law, constantly feeling the burden to make more and more of ourselves so we can finally gain God's approval. And I talk to people all the time. And they constantly ask them the, themselves the question, have I done enough? The law, the commands of God remind us, you haven't done enough. In fact, not even close. whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. You think you've done enough, you haven't done nearly enough. Not even close. Why is the birth of Jesus, why does it come at the perfect time for us? Because from the moment we're born, God's law hangs over us, declaring our guilt. We need to be rescued. And the birth of Jesus is the announcement that our rescuer has come. The one the angels said came to save his people from, the, from their sins. The one the angels announced by this proclamation, Behold, I bring you good news 
of great joy. That's what the birth of Jesus signifies. Now, this leads us to our third question. How does Jesus' birth help us? Well, every religion has a prophet. And every prophet announces what we have to do in order to gain God's favor. Whether it's the five pillars of Islam, or it is the eightfold path of Buddhism, or the rituals and requirements of Mormonism as elucidated by Joseph Smith, all the prophets come and they say, this is what you must do if you are to be right with God. But Jesus comes with a very different message. He's not a prophet who tells us what we need to do to gain eternal life. Jesus is actually God come down to save us. He doesn't offer us a path to him, the steps, the ladder, whatever to him. He actually comes down to us. Jesus doesn't say, do this and that and you will gain eternal life. Jesus says, I am life. Believe in me and you will live. Jesus announces that salvation is by grace. He does it all. We receive the benefits by faith. By believing in him, we are accepted by God. We are embraced by God. And Paul says in this passage I read this morning, by believing in him, we are adopted as sons, as the very children of God. Paul says Jesus was born of a woman, which points to his true humanity. And he had to be born of a woman if he were to be our substitute as humans. Paul says he was born under the law, which meant he himself was obligated to fulfill the law. But he was born, Paul says, to redeem those who are under the law. Now, we don't have time to really get into the concept of redemption. It's such an important one throughout the Scriptures. But let me say it this way. To be redeemed simply means to be liberated from a debt. Redemption refers to the purchase of freedom. It's when someone who is enslaved, someone who is caught up in slavery with no help of gaining freedom, is actually bought out of slavery by someone else. Christ has purchased our freedom from the enslavement to the law. Jesus comes, and at just the right time, he frees us from the burden of the law. He buys us out of that slavery by actually voluntarily putting himself under the law and satisfying all of its demands for us. So we know we failed the law. We failed to obey God in every way and love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus comes and he actually obeys God in every way, by his motives, by his thoughts, by his actions. He satisfies every requirement of the law so that we could be free from the burden of trying to obey it in order to be received by God. Here's, what, here's how Jesus' birth helps us, our final point. Jesus' birth, which made possible his sinless life and death in our place, secured for us our freedom from condemnation and adoption into God's family. Now, when we think about being adopted into God's family, being accepted by God, as we've already talked about, our natural inclination is to think, if I can just be good enough and then I can keep all the rules, then God will receive me. And that's understandable, of course. First of all, it makes sense to us. It's reasonable. It's logical. But it also, it's consistent with everything else we see in the world because everything in the world screams, you get what you deserve at home, at work, at school, 
whether it's college entrance exams or Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or WANA or whatever it is, and I'm not condemning these organizations, but whatever it is, everything we see, everything we hear says you get what you deserve. Everything around us shouts conditional acceptance. You forgive me, and then I'll forgive you. You say something nice to me, and I'll say something nice to you. But if you say something mean to me, I'm going to say something mean to you. You watch the kids while I go shopping, and I'll watch the kids while you go out with the guys. You fix the leaking faucet, and I'll give myself to you physically. You go with me to my mom's for Thanksgiving, and I'll go with you to your family's for Christmas. You meet my requirements, and I'll give you what you ask for. Endless conditions. Endless conditions. And the law of God is the same way. Obey everything written here in word, thought, action, and motive, and God will accept you. But if you fail, the law stands over you to condemn. But God sent His Son when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, to put an end to the law's condemnation. Born of a woman, Jesus is our fitting substitute. Born under the law, Jesus brings forgiveness. He obeys the law entirely so that when we trust in Him, when we believe that He was truly the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross, who was raised again on the third day, when we believe in Him, we come to the end of our own self-salvation projects, our own belief in our goodness, we trust in Him, then His perfect obedience actually becomes ours by faith. Now, is there a more powerful verse in the Scripture than verse 7 of Galatians 4, 4 that I read? So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Palestinian slaves had no rights, no privileges. They lived in fear. They were one mistake, one wrong action away from being disowned, from being cut off, from being severely punished. Just one thing. And they didn't even have to know what they were doing was wrong. If they did one thing that would, that it would offend their master, they would be cut off, disowned, severely punished. So they lived in fear. This was the life of a, a first century slave. But sons, sons were so much different. Sons had total privilege. They didn't live in fear because their status was actually secure. And this is how it is for those of us who are in Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus, your status with God is secure. By faith, you have been forgiven. The one who was born in a manger bore your sin and guilt on the cross. Now, sure, you're going to have some really bad days, just like I do. You're going to have some days where you fall to temptation, where you cave into the same temptation yet again, and you commit the same sin again and again and again. And you're going to have days when you don't even think about God's glory. It's not even on your radar. What would glorify God? What would honor Him? You're going to have days like that. And you're going to have days when you don't spend time in the Word. You don't spend time in prayer. And really, if you were honest with yourself, you know that every motive of your heart on that day is actually selfish. But even on those days, you're forgiven in Christ. You are secure in God's love. Nobody can ever change that. The law has no power to condemn you. Christ has set you free. I love what Martin Luther 
the great reformer wrote in his commentary on Galatians about this section. He says, Christ banished the law from the conscience. It dare no longer banish us from God. For that matter, the law continues to reveal sin. It still raises its voice in condemnation, but the conscience finds quick relief in the words of the apostle. Christ has redeemed us from the law. The conscience can now hold its head high and say to the law, you have lost your influence forever. And that is so good for those of us who are in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, it doesn't mean that now we don't, we're free to do whatever we want. We don't have to obey the law. No, we still obey the law, and it's actually for our good. We obey the law because that's actually the best way to live. It honors God, and it's best for us. But it won't be our obedience or lack of obedience that is the judge that makes the determination as to where we spend eternity. It'll be the, the cross work of the Holy Son of God. No longer would the law stand against us, holding us captive. Jesus fulfills the law so that we can be transformed from slaves to children, so that we could cry out to God as Abba, Father, and He would hear us. I was sitting in IHOP a few years ago, and I was sitting with a guy in our church who was just asking me questions about a lot of things, and then toward the end of the breakfast, he said, hey, this, I don't know, this is kind of random, but he said, I was reading through the Psalms, and I got the impression that God cannot hear the prayers and the cries of the unbeliever. Is that true? And I said, well, it's kind of like this. If we got finished having breakfast, um, and I said to you, you know what, I totally forgot my wallet. I don't have anything to pay with. Like, I wouldn't really have a problem asking you because of our relationship. Now, I mean, I might be a little uncomfortable or whatever, but I, might, I, might, I would ask you, and then you would most likely cover that for me. But I wouldn't go to a stranger. I wouldn't go to somebody sitting four booths over and ask him or her to cover my meal because there's no relationship there. So when an unbeliever cries out to God, it's not as though God has these Bose noise-canceling headphones. He can't hear anything. But what happened is the unbeliever actually lacks the relationship to cry out to God. There's no relationship there. But for those who are in Christ, God actually delights when we come to Him. In fact, when He looks at us, He sees us as the children that He deeply loves, the children that He actually delights in. And so because of that relationship, through the Spirit, we cry out to Abba, Father, and He delights in those expressions of dependence. If you're in Christ this morning... This is, the good, this is why the birth of Jesus came at the perfect time for us, and this is how it helps us. If you're in Christ, you don't have to do anything to gain God's approval. You already have it. Before you got out of bed this morning, you stood accepted by God because of Jesus. You don't have to prove to anyone that you're worth being loved. You don't have to prove to anyone that you're of value. You don't have to, to you know, work your fingers to the bone, so to speak, so that you can show God that you're worthy or deserving of being loved. No, He already loves you in Christ. And because you're loved, because you're accepted, because you're, you're, you've been free from that burden, now you can obey God joyfully. Now you can look out for the best interest of your neighbor regardless of what he or she thinks about you because you're loved in Christ. If you're not in Christ, if you've never turned from your sin and your independence, herein lies the meaning of Christmas for you. Jesus made it possible for you to know God personally, to be restored to the very God who made you, 
Jesus made it possible for you to be made a son or daughter, one with an incredible inheritance, eternal life with Him. But in order for Him to be your substitute, of course, He had to be born. In order for it to be a substitute that applies to you, you must believe. You must believe. In order to receive the benefits of His work, we have to believe. Not simply that Jesus was born in a manger somewhere in the Middle East or that He walked the earth 2,000 years ago but that He came to die for my sins, my rebellion. He came actually to satisfy God's requirements that I failed to satisfy. He came to be my Savior and my Rescuer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for a beautiful morning. Thank You that the the great mystery that was hidden throughout the ages, You say in the book of Ephesians, has been revealed. And we know that that mystery, the rescuer who would come, the identity of the deliverer has now been revealed to us as as Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who was born in Bethlehem, the one who was trained up under a carpenter, who obeyed your law perfectly at every turn. Father, will you help us with, with new eyes, with greater astonishment, Come behold the wondrous mystery and rest and revel in the person and work of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.